Hey everyone, how you doing tonight? Uh, it's been over a week, uh, which still puts me well within my schedule of two a month. But uh, people freaked out a little bit because it wasn't something there last Sunday. Ugh, I'm doing two podcasts. There's no way you can want to hear what I got to say that much. Um, but I really appreciate the fact that people reached out. Is everything good? Is everything okay? Uh, it's a good sign to me that listenership is up, and that's always good. Uh, I'm going to read uh, one email just right off the bat tonight because uh, Bowling Cox wrote in, Hello, Talk Junkie. I don't know about where you're at, but out here on the trail, the temperature has been dropping colder and evenings have become shorter in the pastures. It's that time of year when we all start to go home early and get the kids to sleep so we can go snuggle up in bed with our sweet honeys. I know the soul... <clears throat> I know... The sultry I have for Sally Jean Sue carries over way into the night. Speaking of honey, I've been studying up on honeybees and thought I would share some truthful information with you and your listeners. Did you all know that a honeybee can fly up to six miles? And not only that, but a honeybee can fly as fast as 15 miles per hour. Honeybees are fascinating little creatures. I love learning about honeybees. The only bad thing about honeybees, as many of you may already know, is that if you accidentally spill honey in any secret and private crack, nook, or cranny, then you find out real quick that the average lovable honeybee can quickly turn into a raging homicidal killer bee. No one knows this better than my Aunt Margaret. I'll never forget when I was a kid... Aunt Margaret was rushed to the town doctor after she spilled a jolly of honey. I think that might have been a jar of honey. Or maybe that's an old-timey expression. I don't know. A jolly of honey into one of her crevices and was brutally attacked by a pack of ruthless killer bees. She lived through it and is fine now, but she never walked right again. Well, old pal, i got to get back to Sally Jean Sue. She was on her way to the cupboard to get her midnight snack, Cheerios, this week. And if I ain't mistaken, this week we bought Honey Nut. <laughs> well, thank you, Bowling Cox. Um, to Matt, uh, who also sent a email, I would I think um, he said he'd prefer... Uh, he would second the notion that I didn't start my shows off with emails. Um, so there you go. Uh, I like to condense these emails, and I've noticed that you guys don't seem to care. Like, it doesn't take you out of it if I don't mention every single person. I've had probably the most emails I've ever had over any topic over the whole Ingersoll Lockwood video, and everybody wanting a second uh, podcast about that. I'm going to do one in the future. Uh, just some quick things. Um, their countdown clock ran out, and they just started another countdown clock. And you can sign up on an email list, and I have a buddy that done that. And actually, if you listen to the Spooky Family's uh, Halloween episode, uh, the Haunted House episode, where they, they did the ghost hunt, he actually goes on there, it's Goose, and talks about it a little bit. So you can uh, you can check that out for yourself. If you sign up for this, and it's just a money racket for you to give them like 90 bucks a year to be in some type of club. Uh, so really, I don't think they deserve a lot of attention. And so I'm not giving them a lot of attention. Um, I may go back and, and kind of touch some bases. Uh, I know some people working on some other shows 
uh, going to interview a couple people that are involved with that, so I don't want to step on any toes on that, but that's basically where that sets right now. Uh, the page is still up. You can go check out the page. Uh, you can check out their little countdown clock. It may have went off again. I don't remember when it was counting down to it. It just really have, it's lost my interest. Um, I sat down and watched Dune, and uh, I really liked it. I know there's mixed emotions on the original, which I liked. Um, I wasn't, you know, it's not one of the greatest movies of all time to me. I just, I liked the original. And I know there was some mixed feelings, I guess, about this new one. I don't have mixed feelings about it. Um, I enjoyed it, and I can't wait for the next, um, the next, I guess, sequel or whatever, continuation of part one. But I did have a talk with someone about it. And they didn't enjoy it. I won't mention any names, but I was like, well, you know, what is it that you didn't enjoy? And they had a couple of things, but one of the biggest things is the guy was like, look, these are technologically advanced peoples from the future. You see their planes and their weapons and the guns on their planes and all this. And he's like, and everybody's packing a sword. And I just, I don't get it. That's one of the aspects of the movie I enjoyed. And it's one of the aspects of martial arts movies I think I enjoy. And it's, it's definitely one of the aspects of samurai movies I enjoy. Um, but it, it, it's not just the fact that they carry knives. It's some of the traditions this tribe that uh, the main character ends up becoming involved in. Um, it... No, oh, excuse me. It um, there's a lot of traditions that involve honor, and are dependent upon how you compete in battle and things of that nature. I, I was talking to a buddy of mine, and and this is a buddy that's very pro gun. Um, I, I I believe in in the right to own a firearm. Um, this gentleman is very very pro gun. Uh, I would say maybe even more so than myself. And he and I were talking about people who open carry guns. Um, I don't respect you for that. I don't fear you for that. I don't. Um, I don't feel any way positively towards you for that. Um, I'm not saying that you shouldn't do it if it's legal in your state and that's what you want to do. That's a, a personal choice, and I don't intend to step on a personal choice. I just, I don't do, I don't conceal carry or open carry. I do own a gun, um, but I don't, I don't carry it with me. Um, my wife and I and son were at, um, a local restaurant in Pikeville the other day, and there was a situation that happened, and I actually seen two people open carry. Um, they sat very quietly while the staff and myself helped this person, and, and, talk to this other person and that that's the exact reaction I would expect for someone that open cares and, and don't under, misunderstand me this wasn't a situation where somebody needed to pull a gun or anything of that nature it's just a situation where somebody needed to stay up and stand up and say something um, and they didn't but I, I wouldn't expect anything any differently than that it, to you know Sinsu in the art of war never references such a situation uh, involving a gun, obviously, but he does say things that 
that kind of explain to you the mentality of that. He says, when one is strong, appear weak. And sometimes when one is weak, they need to appear strong. And I think that's kind of the mentality behind that. But but why is it this futuristic battle? I, I don't know. I, I, I've not read any interviews. I don't know if anyone's ever asked them. I don't know if anyone ever asked the author of the original stories. I don't know why these people don't have guns as their primary weapon. They do have guns. I've seen it. I've seen him when he was with the desert people, and, and he actually pulls a gun, but most conflict is uh, hand-to-hand or, or weapons, hand-weapon-based combat. There is a... Even if it's fictitious, and I don't know that it is or isn't, I can't speak to that intelligently, and I don't know that everyone sees it the way I see it. Maybe, maybe they don't. But there is a sense of honor and respect and bravery when viewing a battle that is even as opposed to a battle that is not, or a conflict that is even as opposed to conflict or combat that is not. That is to say, no one has great respect for someone who commits a drive-by. No one has great respect for someone who commits armed robbery. I'm sure someone somewhere does, but you know, we, we can at least agree that that is a, a mental deficiency on that person's part. That's not commonly accepted as a sign of bravery or as a sign of uh, integrity. To, to be armed and assault or impose something upon someone who's unarmed. Or to be massively stronger than someone and, and to aggressively attack someone much weaker. Those are not things that should bring someone great pride. It, there, there are people who feel pride from that. And those people are generally weak on the inside, weak mentally uh, and, and not as strong physically as they perceive themselves to be. That's why they focus more on weaker targets. But I watched this movie, and, and you know this is viewing it in hindsight, because the question was posed in, in hindsight, and I think that's why I enjoy that, that ideal, that notion. And some of it's just greatly romanticized. They're, they're still... You know, there's that aspect of it. It's just a romanticized version of of what's actually going on is how I feel, and I feel that way due to preconceived notions. You, you know, something that has been influenced on me by uh, books I've read and, and by movies I've seen and, and by my interest in some samurai culture when I was younger. Like, it, th- those things definitely influence. Don't, don't misunderstand me that... I don't think violence is a glorified thing, and I don't think that killing is a beautiful thing by any stretch of the imagination. I think it's the exact opposite. I, th- I think it's far better to create and to nurture and to watch something grow than it is to destroy it. But in dire situations, I feel that hand-to-hand combat or uh, even... I feel that to be the purest, but weapons-based combat to be uh, e- even better so than a firearm-based combat. And, and, you know, I've heard a lot of people say, well, you know, in my day, you just take a butt kicking and you'd go on. And I'd like to think that that was true, and that probably was true 
in large part, and it probably still is true in large part, actually the statistical, I would assume, and this is me just kind of thought exercising, but I would assume statistically that you may even be less likely now to be shot after a bare-fisted confrontation than you would have been at a certain point in history. But if you go further back, obviously be on the, before the invention of the gun, then that, that number would shift. But we glorify and look at the Wild West, myself included, it, endlessly fascinated with it and, and endlessly fascinated with the gunslingers of the Wild West and those movies and, uh, you know, really the first anti-hero for American literature and the American public came out of uh, the Wild West. But it was real easy to get shot for no reason uh, then in comparison to now. So uh, it, it's not that it doesn't happen. I just don't know if it's as prolific as it's portrayed to be, which many many things are that are that way. Um, but I thought that was an interesting ideal, you, you know, and interesting in what this guy posed to me, and interesting in why I felt the way I felt and he felt the way he felt. Um, I, I really struggle to justify it in my mind other than it is just the perceived notion that I have. It is not to say that it is the correct notion. And, and that's not to say that anybody shouldn't pack guns. You know, obviously... Uh, there's people in the military who who do things for the right reason and do things for brave reasons and act in bravery who who pack guns and and you know uh, many of them if had given the choice would prefer to settle things a different way but they aren't offered that by the enemy and, and both parties of the conflict will dictate in some way the use of force and you know, you you look at I know most cops I don't know if all but I know most cops have to pack uh, a weapon even off duty they have to have a gun on them you know you never see them open carry at least I don't and I think that's a smart move and they do that for a reason it helps to diffuse situations instead of amplify them it keeps people calm instead of elevating you know, there's certain people I see open carry, and I look at them, and I go, I wish this person didn't have a gun at all. Just my personal request, not a belief in a law enforcement stopping them from having it. And, and secondly, not only do I wish they didn't have it, I wish they didn't have it here. Um, but there is that advantage of seeing someone and going, I wish this person didn't have a gun, but I know that they do, and at least I can see the gun and where it is in relation to them and their body language. Um, but I thought that was an interesting thought, you know, um, send an email, you know, what, what do you think, did it ruin Dune for you because there weren't epic gun battles? I do find, even you look back into Star Wars, I mean, obviously, uh, the Stormtroopers had blasters, but in that story, not just because they have blasters, but they are viewed as in, inferior warriors because they can't compete and they can't uh, engage in combat at the level of these Jedi, which who don't use blasters for the most part, and and use basically the space 
equivalent of a of a sword, you know. <clears throat> that's um that that's an interesting, intriguing thing to me. Um it's kinda like the Batman complex, you know. Superman can stop any crime, especially crimes committed by humans, because he's superhuman, he has superpowers, but Batman, it's almost more honorable and more respected when Batman can do it, because he has to approach from somewhat of an equal playing field, and he has to do so without the intent of killing, whereas those who he may encounter have more than likely the intent of killing him if possible. I don't know. It's something I... Something I came up with and, and something that I thought would make an interesting topic and an interesting thought process. So, you know, send me your email, especially if it's hate email, and let me know how you feel about it. Um, I got uh, another 5,000 emails on um, COVID. Actually, I, I didn't, and on the shot. Um, I still have yet to finish my doctorate. Uh, even more than that, I've yet to finish any of my studies in infectious disease control, and I've yet to finish any of my studies in vaccinations. So my opinion would still be just a basic opinion that is only informed to a certain degree. Uh, so I still don't really have anything outside of what I had to begin with, and I think a lot of those ideas and notions I had to begin with were out of fear and propaganda. Uh, from both sides, because I flip-flopped a lot on that, and still don't know where I, I come in uh, to fall on that. Um, for Rebecca, and I don't even have to look at the email to remember that name, because I won't forget it because of the email. Um, Rebecca basically laid out that I am the biggest part of the problem with vaccinations, because despite surviving a... Uh, a reaction to the first shot, I won't get my second shot. Um, I'm, you know, look, I've got, it's 50-50. I've got one doctor that says, hey, you're good to do it. I've got one doctor that says, absolutely not. Um, bring your doctorate, and the three of you can discuss it out. And at that point, I'd have to get some sort of a res resolution. Uh, I would either get a two-to-one for or two-to-one against or a three-way tie. So, you know, bring your credentials, and you're more... Uh, more than welcome to enter the discussion, but it's not a risk I'm going to take, and if you'll notice, I've never told anyone else not to take the shot, because I'm one person, and um, personally, first-hand knowledge, people I talk to every day, I don't know anybody else that had that situation pop up, so I could very well be an anomaly. It very well could be a mistake, and it's something that tests and and looking into it further could could tell us, but um, at this point, it's just where I'm at, and that's really all I got to say about that. Um, let me get this sheet of paper here. Sean P. Um, Sean P. says that my statements on the media... Um, are, let's see, I don't, look, I try not to cuss as much as possible on this show, they do slip occasionally, uh, Sean basically says that I'm, uh, a living piece of human crap, and that, um, it's my slandering of the media that has damaged the media to the point to get where it's at, 
and that I should not let what Trump says dictate how I view the news in America. I, there's no way with a gun held to my head would anything the big orange machine ever said dictate anything that I believe. I have zero respect for him and um, don't put any stock or weight into his beliefs. I feel the same exact way about Joe Biden. Um, I'm an equal opportunity centrist. Um, but I didn't learn that from Trump. Trump hijacked that. Uh, that was a sentiment that was already very much felt in America by both sides. Uh, Pre-Trump, that was a, you know, um, there was a lot of people on both sides for varying different, you know, the right wing had a reason for it and the left wing had a reason for it and they, they didn't really come together in the middle, but th there, there, was, there was belief uh, in both areas from each one. Um, having said that, I didn't learn that from Trump. Um, how's the TikTok go? I understood the assignment. Well, I understood the assignment. Uh, in the mid to early 90s, Rage Against the Machine released Know Your Enemy, and um, I understood the assignment. I understood the lyrics. I understood the content. And I think that the basic lesson still stands true today. And although myself and many other fans feel like they may have faltered, some of the members, not all, there's one obviously still very much distrusting of both parties, but they may have faltered uh, in in a belief structure that they had and it may flip-flop from time to time. Everyone does. I do it. Everybody does it. They change the way they, they believe. But that song was written at a certain time with a certain purpose and a certain intent and I understood it and uh, so don't uh, don't give the human cheese puff any credit he didn't deserve if you want to credit my opinion on the media and mass media in general uh, give credit where credit is due it come from people like uh, Zach from Rage Against the Machine and it, it come from that type of mentality that was there at that time um, it far precedes 2016 um, and I, you know, I, I still, I, I need to get the video clip up, obviously, and put it on YouTube of, um, these pharmaceutical companies placing their ad at the end of almost every news program that's been on, uh, in, in recent years. Um, that's not to say don't trust the medicine or don't trust the whatever it, it it's a statement kind of on how we operate as Americans and any other country uh, even free market countries um, pharmaceutical companies can't run ads on TV they can't upsell you they, they can't pull, go the car salesman route or the holy roller religious route and and get you in a doctrine and and spit it at you uh, ad wise they're, they're not allowed to do that it, it's not what it's meant to be or what it's meant to do. And don't get me wrong, you need money incentive for companies to invest in this research or you need to have government subsidiaries that, and, and that's what they did with um, the New Peel. You know, the government subsidized all that research and, and that whole program. But now this uh, Merck and Pfizer are going to be able to um, sell that at an exorbitant amount of money to people without insurance. And, um, you know, the right's not going to stop that, and the left's not going to stop that. Um, 
they can say what they want to get elected, but they're not going to stop that, and that that's wrong. And I'll stand by that. I don't I don't have an issue standing by that. Um, is is there a possibility for a middle ground? Yes, there is, but. Politicians can't have as much influence on the medical um, corporations as they have, and medical corporations can't have as much influence on the political landscape as they have. Uh, and in order for you to hit that middle ground, you have to eliminate those two things, and it's, it's hard to eliminate. It's not that it's the easiest thing in the world. It's not like this is you know, just an open and shut deal. It, it is hard. If it wasn't hard, then anybody would do it. You know, I mean, um, that's obvious, and 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 it's it's frustrating at times. Like it, it frustrates me to sit and think, okay, you know, it's obvious that this happens, but because of political bias, one party has to go way to the extreme defending it, and one party has to go way to the extreme attacking it, and nobody can kind of meet in the middle and discuss it, and that's annoying. I mean, and. In an understatement, that's annoying. It's it's a ridiculous, ridiculous uh, process, and it's it's one that we continually involve ourselves in, and it's 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 frustrating. Um, I, I I get out of heart kind of on that. Um, I don't know. I'm um, I don't I don't know how good it does to discuss things like that, because I don't know how impactful the discussion is if people have preconceived notions, you know, but it, it's one of those things, you send the email, I'm, I'm going to respond to it, uh, but Malik, Malik sent an email, Malik said, how is RetroCorp going, and um, what are your plans for it going forward, well, it's really been going good, the The issue with RetroCorp is getting gas, because I think it's more fun with gas. Um, and, and that's hard. It's hard for my work schedule, which is about to change. Uh, but it's been really fun so far. And I threw an old episode that didn't get any play on Talk Junkie back on there the other day that was really more suited for it. And I'm thinking about doing that with a couple more episodes I have just because they, um, they play more to the format of, um, Retro cult, and they were so fun to do, but they really just didn't get listened to on Talk Junkie. Of course, it's still growing, and you know it, it needs to um, to grow and and get to a point, you know, that it has listeners. It don't have a ton of listeners right now. I probably know personally most of the people that listen. Um, you know, I, I I I'm excited about it. And, you know, the question is, will it be an every week podcast? That that gets to be one hard, and it makes it work to the point that it can't be fun because you have to get the topic, you have to get, you know, the guest, and, and everyone is kind of hectic, especially this time of year. So as far as its format and how often I'm going to do the show and whatever show's going to be, and is every show going to have a guest, obviously not, uh, but I'm, I'm really, I'm satisfied with it, and I'm satisfied with where it's going and what it's doing, uh, you asked about, uh, co-host for the show, uh, I don't think with, 
Um, with that show, a permanent co-host would work. Uh, because you go around so many different things. There's people out there. Bolin Cox. Bolin Cox is a guy that, you know, if if we just talk retro things, you know, I could see talking to that guy every week because I know him personally. That's not just somebody that writes him, but I know him personally. But I don't think it would be fun for him on certain episodes. You know, like the Halloween and horror stuff, if I could have lined that up and got him on there, he would have loved that, and it would have been a very informative show, and you definitely would have learned something about horror movies you probably didn't know. But I don't know that he would enjoy everything about all the aspects of that show, and that's kind of the issue with that show, because it is all the things that I enjoy, but not everyone's going to have that same kind of vibe as you, you know, and you can do it still. It's not impossible, especially with the right format, but it's, you know... um, I kind of like the idea of having different guests from time to time and different people. So that, you know, uh, but it, you can't really rule anything out. Now, if you're talking about Talk Junkie, I have mentioned on here a couple of times a co-host. Um, there's a feeling to the show, and there's a um, an atmosphere to the show that I do enjoy, and that is fun. I think no matter what with Talk Junkie, even if it was an add-on or just a clip each week, there would always be a portion of it, maybe not every episode, but occasionally that would be just me. But trying to find the right co-host, because I'm really particular over Talk Junkie, and I'm really particular over guiding it one way or the other instead of letting it just flow. And, and I'm protective of it. And I'm, I'm not ashamed of that in any way or anything like that. Like, I... I feel that should show to you how much I care about the show. I've said it other places and other times. The only person that I think could really do that show, I don't think she's interested in doing it. And, you know, like it is a big commitment. It's hard. So, you know, I look to have her on more often. But that's the only person I can think of. There's one person in particular I think could... I, I would be comfortable with doing the show 90% of the time or 100% of the time. And it would work well with interviewing other people, you know. <clears throat> and there are weeks that I crave that and would like to have that because it's not like it's a miserable amount of work by any means. Don't don't get me wrong. Uh, it's not. But there are instances where... I just have somebody to kind of pack a little bit of the weight. You know, that's... I don't know. Um, this next one's not an email. It's it's from Messenger. Uh, I'm not going to mention the name because they don't know that this is going to be on uh, the air or anything, but I posted in one of the groups, you know, one of the numerous promote your podcast groups. You know where you put it on there and then 40,000 people send you messages wanting to get paid to promote your podcast, and you're just like, hey, I'm just trying to share it with other people. I found Buzz in the Tower that way. You know, so I enjoy looking at other people's podcasts. I found some other ones. Some I've liked, some I've not. But I give positive feedbacks. I give the reviews, and I go on. Uh, But someone sent me a message from there and said, check out your podcast on Anchor, because I guess I uploaded an Anchor um, link, and I do that from time to time. 
uh, especially if it was the anchor group, because there's an anchor group on there. Uh, they said, where all else can I find you in your podcast? And, and I'm hoping that they're still listening via anchor to talk junkie. And if they are, um, this will answer their question. I answered it in Messenger as well, but <clears throat> and told them, you know, I'm not going to respond back that I was going to mention it on the show. Um, it's available on um, iTunes, Spotify, Anchor, Google Plus, all, all those, the big podcast areas. Uh, a, a couple more, I want to say iHeart, you know, stuff like that. Um, occasionally on YouTube, if I do a video version, I just don't stick the audios up there anymore. It's not really worth it. Um, but you can also check out Retro Cult, which is another podcast of mine, which is on uh, currently on iTunes, Anchor, and YouTube. Um, really hard to find on Anchor. Bowling Cox pointed that out to me. Like, you can't search it on Anchor. And Anchor's supposed to be working on that. I sent them an email. They're usually pretty expedient about fixing stuff, but uh, you just you could not search it. I mean, no way. If you didn't have the link for Anchor, you wouldn't find it on Anchor. But you can find it on Spotify and iTunes really easy. Uh, and then, if you listen to Here's Your Bubblegum, I do a show with uh, a segment that he plays on that show, and I play on this podcast. I don't always put it in episodes. Actually, usually it's usually a standalone, but I'm going to put one in this week's episode. Uh, on this episode right here, you're listening to it. When I'm done here, you're going to hear this. It's called Believe It or Not, uh, not spelled K-N-O-T-T because we're from Knott County. Uh, it's a fun little thing. started out as like a fun little side project, and we've already got a full-length show planned out, and... Uh, or episode, not a full show, but uh, it's something I really enjoy doing, and uh, I don't even check me out there. And if you're listening because you found me on one of these places and you want to hear other podcasts, or you're from the area and you want to hear other podcasts, check out the Spooky Family Podcast, check out Here at You Bubblegum, check out the Paranormal Trucker on YouTube, check out Seth's Daily Podcast on YouTube, um, wow. check out Eli Griffith's uh, Homegrown um podcast is on Foxy 94.3 maybe. God, I suck at this. I don't write anything down, but check out Eli. Uh, an amazing dude. A great stand-up comedian. He's got a radio show. He's got the podcast. Check that out. Um, I've been on most of these things uh, recently. Check out uh, Down the Holler with Brad and Jordan. Check out um, uh, Chris Sloan's Mountain Mysteries. Um, and there's so many good podcasts. Uh, check out A Voice in the Mountain. Um, just look them up, they're on Facebook stuff, she's on radio things, I think she's doing something on NPR now, but I don't know that's A Voice in the Mountains, that's particularly on NPR, because I've not heard it yet, um, check out the 13th floor, they were originally from Kentucky, uh, check out Buzz in the Tower, if you like retro 80 stuff, like retro cult, check out all those places, uh, if you want to get a hold of me, email me, talkjunkie at gmail.com, um, don't suck, don't die, and um, above all else, just be good to people. It's not that hard. It's now time for Believe It or Not with Justin and Goose. Hello, I'm Justin Perkins, and some of the best things in life just aren't quite believable. Jot them down, store. Love from Abner. I'm Goose, and welcome to Believe It or Not with Justin and Goose. Uh, today we're going to talk about the Russian boy from Mars. Uh, now, had you heard about this story before I made you aware of it? No, I had not. Now, this is a fascinating one because, I mean, we need to follow up on this one. Uh, I will let you pronounce this guy's name. Uh, my Russian is good. 
Bariska Kiprianovich. Okay. What he said, Bariska Kiprianovich, um, is from Volgograd, Russia. And he claims that he, along with others, were sent to Earth to save mankind from an apocalyptic nuclear war. Um, Also, his knowledge of outer space and the Red Planet for nearly 20 years have taken scientists and experts by surprise. Uh, Bariska's parents claimed that he was able to speak after just a few months old, and he would discuss subjects that they never taught him, such as alien civilizations. Bariska's mother and father didn't teach him anything about space, and as a child, he would often sit and talk about Mars, the planetary system, and alien civilizations. What's your thoughts on that so far? It's, I mean, look, all you can do is take it at face value. If they're telling the truth, this kid was astonishing from day one. You know, I mean, if they're sending him to stop a nuclear war, they might have sent him to the wrong country. I don't know. (laughs) He's got an uphill battle there. But uh, it, it is definitely a very intriguing story. This is one of those things that... True or not true, I'm going to be interested in it as soon as I see it. It takes me back, you know, when I was younger, every night before bed, uh, my papa would sit down and he'd start reading Weekly World News. And he thought it was the funniest thing ever was. I did not. I thought it was the craziest, truest thing ever made. And so that's what I was brought up reading was Weekly, was weekly World, World News. News. And like this reminds me of something you'd see in there, except this is a little better written, you know, some of the articles well. I've seen. You know, and you can duck, duck, go this and find some interesting facts about this. Uh, Bariska basically says that um, all Martians are around seven feet tall. Uh, they still live underground uh, currently on the red planet, and they breathe in carbon dioxide. He says that they are immortal and stop aging at age 35. And according to him, they are also technology. Uh, tech, they are, are also very advanced and capable of interstellar travel. It's one of those days where I found, exactly. I've got marbles in my mouth. Um, as a schoolboy, Bariska uh, explained how the Martians had a strong connections to ancient Egyptians on Earth. Um, let me find this part real quick here. He um, said that life on Earth was cha- that life on Earth will change dramatically when the great Sphinx Monument in Giza is unlocked, adding that the opening mechanism is hidden behind an ear. Now, have you ever done any research on the pyramids of Giza or the, or the Sphinx? A lot. And uh, it's one of those things that really, really fascinate me, especially with not only the dating of the pyramids and things of that nature, but what is under the paw of the Sphinx. We know there's something there. We can we can prove that, but Egypt's a weird place, um, mm-hmm. and, and there's a lot of politics and a lot of bragging rights when it comes to digging something up and finding it, and they've either already went in and found something they don't want to share, or they're just not wanting to let anybody in there for whatever well, reason. What do you think about his comment saying that, you know, there would be, uh, let's see, Earth will change dramatically when the Great Sphinx Great Sphinx Monument in Giza is unlocked. I mean that the opening mechanism is hidden behind an ear. Well, that's that's a pretty safe bet because I, I look at it like this: uh, you, you know, we know the pyramids had a function of some sort. They weren't just built for the heck. No, of it. they wouldn't. You know, and modern people do build things. Uh, you know, monuments, Lincoln Monument, things of that nature for no reason. I understand we have. A history of 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 that, but my, you know, people of that time differed from modern people because 
they didn't have the manpower and the time and the investment to put into something that didn't serve some type of purpose. So it had to, on the least, be maybe a temple, you know, at the best possibly be a library, which would be amazing, you know, the Lost Library of Alexandria, you know. It, it, something like that has been stored there or, or anything of that nature. You know, that would make it one of the greatest finds, you know, in the history of man. Now, and we do have a fellow Kentuckian that has made claims before that, you know, when a secret chamber would be discovered in 2000, I think, 2012. Edgar Casey. Yes, and he also predicted just what you said would be found there. I, you know, I, I am a staunch skeptic when it comes to psychics and anything of that nature, but uh, Edgar Casey has always just fascinated me for whatever reason. And, uh, you know, he, he's one of those guys that, he knew something. I just don't know how he knew it. Yes, and I totally agree with you. Now, uh, I've been looking into the pyramids and especially the Sphinx lately. And uh, this one video, and I cannot remember. It was on, uh, I think, the Discovery Channel. I cannot remember the name of the show. But it was talking about they had diagrams, supposedly, that they'd found somewhere else in, in Egypt. I can't remember where. But there was a series of tunnels and rivers and uh, so forth under the Sphinx, that people actually entered these in the early 1900s, and they sealed them back up. Well, that's not a big leap. I mean, you're looking at a completely stone surface that this is carved out of. I, I think that's kind of the difference between it and uh, the pyramids. Actually, the Sphinx, it, the the bottom the base for the Sphinx is carved out of an existing rock layer. And then the Sphinx is, I don't know if the Sphinx itself is carved out of that entire layer. I know the legs are, but I believe the entirety of the Sphinx is actually carved out of the ground. So there's a lot of room there. You know, they yes. were going to build tunnels. It, it's, the possibilities are, and tunnels in the ancient world are not a new thing. You know, the underworld played a huge part in, in Egyptian mythology. It did in almost all cultures leading up to our own, and it still does in a lot of ways, you know. But <clears throat> we know from ground-penetrating radar and things of that nature, there's definitely, and I don't know if the date coincided with Casey or not, but I know they found the... The, the room under the pile. Yes. And then as far as, you know, the one thing that I found interested in what he said about it, the, the mechanism to open it being found behind an ear, that's not the original face of the Sphinx, more than likely, what's currently on it. It was probably a lion's head at one time. And it, it's kind of, I've seen good arguments that show you know, based on aging and things of that nature, that it's newer than the rest of, of, the, of the, the body. body yes. Which should be the opposite because mm -hmm. most of its lifetime it's been covered in sand. Sand comes in, covers these things up. So the first thing that gets exposed every time is the face. That's a lot of why the nose is gone. So it takes the brunt of the wind and abrasion from the sand blowing in. So it should not only look older, which it does in some respects to the rest of the body, but it should age and date you know, and show more signs of aging, and it doesn't. It shows to be a lot newer part. So no doubt they've changed that. Maybe they lost knowledge of where this opening mechanism is, and it was covered up or damaged when they changed the face of the Sphinx. Now, I think one of the ears, when you look back behind one of the ears, you can see an opening. Uh, I don't know, you know, and it may be big enough to crawl into. I know on top of the Sphinx there is a thing covered up that they sealed up that was way down inside. 
And one of the ears, I think it's the one farthest from the pyramid, I'm thinking there's an opening or something because they've got it blocked off with rock or, or sandstone or something, and it's not a perfect fit. You can see, you know, where there's gaps in it. Well, you know, Egyptologists, especially local guys, I can't remember the guy's name to save my life, but he's the guy you see on every single show about Egypt and other. The graybeard guy. Yeah, he yeah. is a control freak. He has full back of the government, and they limit what can be said, what can be found, what can be done, when something can be looked at, and who can look at it. And he probably knows if there's something yeah. in there. They, I actually think that he may have got replaced a few years ago. Like that maybe be, a year or two ago. It would be a vast improvement because... And I think he sued uh, the uh, uh, Egyptian government because they replaced him. He he was as a... The, what was he, the head of antiquities? Yes. Yes. I know his name like I know my own. I cannot think of it. He was probably the biggest roadblock for the work that uh, Dr. Randall Carlson did and, and the stuff that he brought Graham Hancock in. And this guy thinks Graham Hancock's the evilest man to ever walked the face of the earth. Graham Hancock is not a scientist, he's not a historian, he's an author, but he's a very intelligent man and he's put a lot of work into it. But he, a lot of his theories are backed by guys like Dr. Randall Carlson until he come up with this aging theory on the Sphinx that it's older and that it is water erosion that's caused this and not sand, which means it was built in a time that it was a much more... Uh, you know, a much different climate right. than it has been in the time frame that it was originally thought to be built. You know, very few real scientists are questioning that theory, but Egyptologists are attacking it vehemently. It's not possible. And they've done that time and again. They've done that with Tut and been proved wrong. They've done that with so many things in the past and been proved wrong that not a whole lot of people pay a lot of attention to what Egyptologists says. It's kind of a political deal, and they need it to fit a certain religious narrative. And, and you know, they, they kind of keep it I don't know, kind of hush-hush, right. find something new because of that. Uh, well, researchers have described uh, this uh, Russian boy uh, as extremely shy, uh, above average intelligence, and his outstanding knowledge for the planetary system has confound experts around the world, including scientists. Could be Elliot. So, on a scale of 1 to 10, do you think he's from Mars? Um... <laughs> Because <laughs> Russians are naturally smart. I mean, if I'm going to be honest and not be facetious at all, I'd have to say a one. Uh, I was going to say two, so I'll stick with two. Yeah. Two. Uh, um, I believe with two that he's not uh, from Mars. Um, well, uh, you all, uh, I want to thank everyone for tuning in. You can always email us at believe it or not, spelled K N O T T, at here to chew bubblegum.com. We'll be back next week with more. Believe it or not.